concerns about tourists carrying COVID. We do have challenges, though, when it comes to mobility within Canada. More pressure to close the provincial border, too. And new data on transmission in schools. A school trustee lights up during a Zoom call. Mr. Neufeld's um, uh, behavior at, at the board meeting uh, was reprehensible. Why some say it's more evidence he needs to resign. And a letter from a vice principal goes viral. It's a big deal because he was concerned about what that might look like at night when he went home and didn't have something to put under his pillow. Her message to the tooth fairy on behalf of an anxious child who literally lost a tooth. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Despite pleas to stay at home, some of BC's most popular spots are seeing an influx of tourists, sparking concern about the spread of COVID-19 from other provinces. Today, the Premier admitted he's seeking legal advice to see if any action can be taken to stop non-essential travellers from crossing the BC border. Jordan Armstrong reports. Whistler doesn't make money off of Whistler. It's visitors who keep this place running. So when you ask locals about the idea of a travel ban, they'll often hesitate. I think that would be un-Canadian. It's a real dilemma. I mean, tourism is our lifeblood. At the same time, the former mayor and others are concerned about the crowding and cases of pandemic rules being ignored. I've seen large groups of people without wearing masks, um, obviously not social distancing. They seem to be oblivious of the fact that there is a pandemic. A resident of nearby Pemberton says she was shocked to encounter a group of 10 skiers on Whistler Mountain from Quebec, a province currently under curfew amid a surge in COVID hospitalizations. They answer me that um, there is more cases in Quebec than British Columbia, so that's why we're here. On a weekday afternoon, there's little to no lineup for the Blackcomb Gondola, but on a weekend morning, locals say the lineup is massive and snakes through the village with the wait to upload as long as 90 minutes. They need probably drastic measure from the government uh, to help them to understand how important it is uh, to stay home. Premier John Horgan says he's seeking legal advice on whether an interprovincial travel ban is even possible. People talk about, have been talking about it for months and months, as you know, and I think it's time we put it to bed finally and said either we can do it and this is how we would do it, or we can't, and this is the reason why. But BC's top doctor is already throwing cold water on the idea. It's uh, hard to see how that is feasible in, in British Columbia for many reasons. Our borders are very different. We have many ways that people can cross, uh, particularly from Alberta. So it seems the door will remain open to those who find the temptation of great snow too great to resist. Jordan Armstrong, Global News, Whistler. All right, here's a rundown of today's COVID-19 numbers for B.C. That's right. We have 536 new cases. That brings our total to 59,608. Sadly, we've lost seven more people, which means 1,038 have now died of COVID-19 in our province. 362 people are in hospital, 74 of them in the ICU. 52,605 people are considered recovered leaving us with 4,624 active cases and just over 7,300 people in self-isolation. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now. Keith, we also learned today interior health 
has now leapfrogged right over Vancouver mm-hmm. Coastal Health when it comes to new cases. Clearly, that's a concern. Yeah, and it's a developing one, Chris. So today is 14 days since New Year's Eve. That's one incubation period. So it's interesting to see the numbers grow in interior, far greater numbers on a percentage basis than other health authorities. It's interesting to look at the active cases and how they've changed since uh, December 31st. Interior has 948 active cases. That's an increase of 276. Vancouver Island also sees an increase. But the other health authorities are seeing drops in active cases, notably Fraser Health, almost 3,500 fewer cases actively since December 31st. An example that Fraser, uh, that Interior Health people were not obeying the rules in terms of not gathering in parties and such, a point Dr. Bonnie Henry made today. What we're seeing is more local, where people are co- had come together in small groups, had, had decided that they could um, stretch those rules, and we're seeing transmission in small clusters that is moving through communities. And it's very challenging. Now, in the interior, we are seeing the implications of what could happen in this province if we had all taken those liberties a, a few weeks ago. But it is absolutely reflective of people getting together over the holiday season. Another troubling development today, Keith. We've heard about the UK variant in BC, Mm -hmm. and today Dr. Henry confirmed there's a case of the variant from South Africa, which is a little bit different. A little bit different, but just uh, the problem with it is more transmissible than COVID-19. It's more infectious. So those two strains are particularly problematic if they get out there in the community. The UK one has not spread beyond just a few people, but there's a bit of a mystery with the South African one because we don't know where it came from. Here again is Dr. Bonnie Henry. We've also identified our first case of the South African variant of the COVID-19 virus. And this uh, is a person who has not known to to have traveled or to have connection with the traveler. So we are still investigating uh, where this person uh, might have contracted uh, this virus. um, And that, that will continue. Um, It is, of course, concerning that we don't know where this arose. Um, However, at the moment, it does not appear to have spread in the community. So you can be sure that community uh, contact tracers are going to remain very busy trying to figure out where this thing came from. Hopefully we'll have an update on this in the days ahead. All right. Looking forward to that. Thank you, Keith. Now, as vaccine efforts ramp up in our province, the pandemic has become more than just a public health crisis for First Nations communities. Incidents of racism are on the rise, especially among those facing COVID-19 outbreaks. As John Hua reports, BC's top doctor is joining the calls for an end to the hate. Ready? One, two, three. It's a rollout that also marks a collective sigh of relief for First Nations communities like the Cowichan tribes. I felt it was important that I get a COVID-19 vaccination. The first 600 doses arriving in a community facing 96 confirmed cases. The vaccine may be offering people living here protection against more than just the virus. When uh, it has come to public attention that there is an, a current cluster, um, that there has been a lot of um, you know, racism-infused backlash. Pandemics and stigma are an old story for Indigenous people. This video by Northern Health made to address increased discrimination towards what has ultimately been transparency about COVID-19 cases in First Nations communities. The Cowichan tribes who are being treated absolutely appallingly by uh, community members because they have been identified as potential uh, COVID patients. 
Reports of racist remarks include calls that First Nations people be fired from jobs or denied service by businesses off the reserve. This virus does not care who we are or where we come from. It does not discriminate. Only we can do that. And we need to do better. The First Nations Health Authority says racism isn't caused by reports of COVID-19 exposures. It's just an excuse to express a sentiment that's already there. The racism has always been there. Um, and sometimes it simmers very close to the surface, but isn't as evident. While it's unknown when this community will be provided the next round of the vaccine. This type of racism cannot be tolerated, and I stand against this. A defense against hatred and discrimination needs to be administered right now. John Hua, Global News. Well, new data on COVID transmission in schools should give some relief to worried teachers, parents, and students. Vancouver Coastal Health says it shows classroom transmission has been low compared to the wider community. And Richard Zussman has the details. It's the primary question of any parent with a child in the BC school system. Are they safe? Vancouver Coastal Health producing data to support the claim they are. We have seen very low levels of transmission in the school system since the beginning of the school year. Since the return of school until the end of December, the region has seen 700 COVID cases in schools. This from a school population of around 100,000 people, including school districts in Richmond, Vancouver and North Vancouver. And over 90% of these cases have not resulted in any school-based transmission. I think a lot of it comes down to the infection prevention and control measures that we've put in place in coordination with our districts and our schools. The information, just an overview from Vancouver Coastal Health. There is a strong call being made to provide more information connected to schools, not just in the region, but across the province, including specifics around how many teachers versus students have actually been diagnosed with the virus. The information provided in other jurisdictions is how many classes have been required to self-isolate and how many students versus staff have been diagnosed. Ontario can do it, Quebec can do it, Alberta can do it, Manitoba can do it. We think it can be done in BC. There are also calls to find out how many classes have been required to self-isolate and improving exposure letters to include how many actual COVID cases are linked to the notice. And parents are raising their concerns the best they can. They're saying we need to make good decisions for our family. And we need to be able to go to one place and be able to find that information. What is also happening is some parents are filling the void, often using social media to track COVID data themselves. Premier John Horgan says the province is ensuring people that they will get the information they need to know. Creating hysteria uh, when there may not be uh, a prospect of transmission is what we want to avoid. And we also want to protect uh, people's privacy. But critics say just the opposite. The hysteria is caused when there's a lack of information. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The opposition Liberals are hammering the NDP government over the latest surprising statistics on its property speculation tax. New figures show the tax, which was enacted to target foreign-owned properties, now hits B.C. homeowners more than any other single group. Ted Chernecki reports. First, no one knew just how many foreigners were buying up housing in B.C., so they changed the way purchases are recorded. Then, a 0.5% vacancy or speculation tax was imposed. A year ago, it was bumped up to 2%. The result, foreign buyers either sold their properties or rented them to avoid the tax. But now the majority of the people paying the spec tax are going to be British Columbians, Canadians, residents. They're now being punished 
in a lot of ways for maybe owning a second home, uh, being fortunate enough to do that. BC residents paying the speculation tax number 2300 in 2018 and about the same in 2019. But foreign taxpayers dropped in half from almost 4600 to 2300 And satellite families, where the majority of income is earned out of country, dropped from 2600 to 1600 The Premier says the tax was there to deal with. Overwhelming numbers of vacant properties and offshore investments that were driving up the costs for British Columbians. Those were our objectives. It was not designed to be a revenue driver. It was designed to be a housing initiative, and I think it's been successful. The NDP sold this to the public saying, we are going to put this speculation tax in to help reduce rent and help reduce the cost to buy a home in these areas. And not only have they collected $88 million for government, but house prices and rents continue to go up. So it has not had the cure that they said this was going to have. Initially, the NDP said British Columbians would not pay the speculation tax, but it was later revealed they do, but at a rate of 0.5% versus 2 for foreigners. But in addition, Vancouver has its own vacancy tax. It charges 3% of assessed value on properties that are vacant for more than six months of the year. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A new report shows Kelowna is among the fastest-growing cities in Canada, sitting at fourth on the list. According to a Statistics Canada report, the greater Kelowna area had a nearly 2% increase in population. That's a huge difference from other large urban areas, which have seen their population growth slow or reverse in recent years. Many people likely making the move as their situations change, like looking for work or needing a home that can also double as an office. It's led by two things, international immigration, uh, as well as... Um, movement from other provinces. And, and a little bit of it is also movement from other parts of British Columbia. So it seems to be a very attractive uh, region. People really want to live there. Kelowna's tops in Western Canada. The other city, cities are Oshawa, Halifax, and Kitchener-Cambridge-Waterloo in population rate growth. It was a disturbing example of bullying shared on social media. The schoolyard attack on a student in Mission has led to quite a response from the community. The latest on the investigation and two students facing charges. That's next on the News Hour. Coming up, quieter streets in Canada's most populous city. Is the lockdown in Toronto more motivation to follow the guidelines here? That's later. And the Vancouver mayor who walked the streets to help devise a better strategy to deal with drug addiction and what it cost him later. Two grade eight girls have now been arrested and charges are recommended in connection to that brutal video showing an attack on a 13-year-old transgender student outside a Mission Middle School. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, the victim's mother says she and her daughter have found some comfort in the outpouring of support from the community. A warning, some of the images in this story are disturbing. The video is very disturbing. It shows two girls kicking and punching another girl outside a Coal Heritage Park Middle School in Mission. The incident happened on Monday. Now those two girls have been arrested and face charges. One will be facing a count of assault, and the second female will be facing a charge of assault and uttering threats. The victim is a 13-year-old transgender lesbian. Her mother, who was blurred to protect her daughter, says they can't believe how much the community is supporting them. 
It's been an overwhelming amount of support. Um, we've got an outpouring amount of emails that have been coming in to us and even people reaching out on social media asking if we can get into contact with them. On Sunday at 3 p.m., locals are holding a rally for the girl who was bullied. We're going to do a parade past an area down on the waterfront in Mission and uh, the idea is to keep the family safe so we can drive past where they will be and uh, show their support. Also reacting to what happened, BC's education minister. As soon as we became aware of the allegation, we sent our, our Safer Schools team in to support uh, the school and the district, um, uh, address, address the situation. So our, uh, our, our team has been, uh, has, uh, is on site and is working with, uh, with the school and with educators uh, and, and with students. Five bucks go stop stop right the girls who were arrested have since been released. Conditions include they not attend the school and have no contact with the victim. She's just in shock more than anything. Um, she's said a lot of, wow, really? Holy! Like, she just can't believe the amount of support that she is receiving. There's a lot of love coming her way. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And after that, a reminder that even the smallest act of kindness can make a big impact. Ravi Kellon, BC's jobs minister, posted a tweet last night about his 10-year-old son and a friend who saw a new kid at the school sitting alone and decided to join him. At the end of the day, the boy gave Kellon's son the note, which reads in part that sitting with him outside felt better than anything. Kellon calls it a proud dad moment. I think the world can use a little bit of kindness right now, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and so, you know, certainly on social media, there's this desire for hope, uh, you know, a desire for a little bit more kindness. And, um, and, you know, I think people can relate with the idea of needing somebody right now. The tweet has been liked more than 350,000 times so far. Well, tomorrow marks the birthday of one of the 20th century's greatest figures, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The anti-racism coalition in Vancouver wants to mark the occasion with a display of solidarity. In the vein of Pink Shirt Day or Orange Shirt Day, Friday will be Black Shirt Day. While the B.C. government has yet to formally recognize the day, several school districts across the province have offered their support. Students who choose will go to school in black shirts. One of the goals of the day will be to build on the awareness of systemic racism raised during the summer where we saw Black Lives Matter protests. Organizers are asking the government to mandate curriculum changes in B.C. schools to include black history and the struggle for civil rights. A petition with about 9,000 signatures will be sent to the education minister. We did it the opposite way. Instead of petitioning her first and going to her, we thought that we would push Black Shirt Day, get as much participation as we could, um, and then go with go to her and say, you know, we have about five districts on board, you know, multiple schools. It spread to Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, and we thought that it would um, it would be a better way to approach her. Martin Luther King Day is a national holiday in the U.S. celebrated on the third Monday in January. Black History Month in B.C. starts February 1st. Coming up, another bizarre episode involving controversial school trustee Barry Neufeld. We asked him to resign his position. What happened during a recent Zoom call when he was confronted by other board members? And reaching across generations, how seniors 
and sixth graders are becoming pen pals. Traffic has almost fully recovered here eastbound on Highway 1 through Coquitlam after clearing an earlier stall. It was in the HOV lane just past Brunette. Save on foods and save on time. Shop online then swing by for a quick, safe and free curbside pickup. Super savings online now at saveonfoods.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Coquitlam. Crown Council presented closing arguments today in a hearing that will decide if Gabriel Klein will go to prison or remain in custody at a psychiatric facility. Klein was convicted of second-degree murder in the death of Letitia Reimer after attacking her in the foyer of her school in 2016. Defense is arguing he is not criminally responsible, but as Romina Dea reports, Crown says the evidence shows otherwise. Inconsistent, unreliable, and deceitful. This is how Crown Counsel characterized Gabriel Klein's evidence. Rob McGowan arguing Klein was not insane when he fatally stabbed 13-year-old Letitia Reimer 14 times and badly injured her friend inside their Abbotsford High School. In March, Klein was found guilty of second-degree murder and aggravated assault. Crown does not dispute Klein now suffers from schizophrenia. The question is, did he suffer a true psychotic break from reality at the time of the stabbings? McGowan says the evidence does not support this. On Wednesday, defense told the court Klein did not see two girls. He thought he was killing a zombie and a witch. A voice told him to kill. While Martin Peters argued the evidence is consistent with what Klein told doctors, McGowan says there's a myriad of inconsistencies, including various versions of why he attacked the teens. Crown said Klein's history of drug use should raise concerns because he has described seeing monsters before. It will be several weeks before the judge hands down her decision. Romina Dea, Global News. A controversial Chilliwack school trustee is once again being criticized for his actions, this time for his behavior during an online trustee meeting. It's just the latest action prompting his critics and BC's education minister herself to call for his resignation. Paul Johnson has more. Sports is full of life lessons for kids. I mean, a lot of the time, it's a struggle for school boards to get any publicity. In Chilliwack, however, one trustee shows he's got it down. And with our school district. Watch closely here. In this official district meeting held via Zoom, where school board trustee Barry Newfeld appears to light up a smoke and then top up that indulgence with a sip of something from a wine glass. A few seconds later, his apparent smoke break goes offline entirely. It's not conduct becoming of any professional. Board member Willow Reeschelt says Newfeld was not only straining the limits of Zoom etiquette, but as a leader in education, was setting a bad example for kids. We don't want kids vaping, we don't want kids smoking cigarettes. To be basically smoking for all the world to see on a public Zoom meeting is not the kind of behavior we're trying to encourage in our district. Newfeld's alleged disregard for Zoom decorum is only the latest outrage, according to his critics. Late last year, they called him out for a Facebook post where he used the R-word to describe local newspaper staff who wrote things that displeased him. In fact, one of the very things on this meeting's agenda was a move to censure Newfeld and call for his resignation. A call that's now also coming from the province's top educator, the minister herself.
Mr. Neufeld has demonstrated he's not really interested in being uh, uh, in, in, the, in the role of a student trust uh, of a school trustee and that he should step down. We couldn't reach Neufeld at his home Thursday. Provincial law doesn't appear to have a mechanism to remove a single elected school trustee. So Neufeld may be there to stay for now. But in a tenure, his critics say is no longer serving students. Case in point, they say, the last part of his Zoom indignity, apparently having a snooze with the camera rolling. In Chilliwack, Paul Johnson, Global News. Up next, the reality of a provincial stay-at-home order. So there really was no difference in the number of cars that we saw. Some might wonder if the state of emergency in Ontario is really sinking in. Also tonight, when a young student lost a tooth and couldn't find it, the vice principal came up with a plan to make sure the tooth fairy came anyway. Good evening. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is moving well in both directions on Highway 99. Kermac Collision and Auto Glass have been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Ontario's new state of emergency to fight COVID-19 in that province came into effect at midnight. One of its components is a requirement that, for the most part, people stay at home. But is Canada's largest city abiding by the latest lockdown rules? Here's Global's Sean O'Shea. On the first day of Ontario's second pandemic state of emergency, traffic on roadways tells part of the story. Given the latest government order, Global News airborne traffic reporter Kimberly Fowler expected to see something far different looking below from her helicopter. Yes, totally. I thought I would see fewer vehicles on the road. Especially with a new law and a plea from the Premier in two languages. Stay home. Restay à la maison. That's simple. But from Fowler's vantage point... Yesterday to today, even last week, though there really was no difference in the number of cars that we saw. Compare that to last March when the pandemic was declared. Back then, this is what the downtown area looked like from above. The most populous city appeared abandoned. Now, 10 months ago, I was doing a story similar to this one when the first state of emergency was declared and the streets were quiet. Today, not so. People, in spite of the stay-at-home order, are out, legally out. People like Eileen and Bev. Her and I go, have been going for a walk once a day for months together. We don't really see any of our other friends. Exercise is allowed and there are good reasons to be away from home. Most of the people I'm seeing have, like, grocery bags, food... Uh, they're construction workers, like they seem to be out for a reason other than just to hang out. People have been forced to get used to one order after another since March. Many resigned to the reality they're doing what's necessary. We'll just continue, stay the course and hopefully beat this. If it looks like not much has changed in a day, consider this. I basically, since March, haven't really been leaving the house very much anyways. Corinne Herman can and does work from home. She and others have been living this kind of life for the better part of a year. I've been pretty much staying inside and isolating, like I'm getting a few groceries today and that's about it. It's the kind of approach health experts are hoping others will follow for at least the next month. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. As the COVID-19 pandemic forces people apart, a new initiative in Penticton is helping to bring them together the old-fashioned way, through letter writing. As Global's Shelby Tom reports, a pen pal pilot project is bridging generations and bringing a lot of joy. 
Students in this grade six class at KVR Middle School are carefully crafting handwritten letters, but they're not for mom or dad. Hello again. It's Caden. I'm writing back to you again. These letters are for seniors whom they've never met in person. My pen pal's name is Marion B. And she's really nice. The 11-year-olds are partnered with pen pals at the Charles Manor Independent Living Facility. One of them is a letter, the first letter that uh, my pen pal sent me. And the, the exchange of letters and Christmas cards is helping to reduce social isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic. The part that I think I miss the very most is getting together with the family. Hi, my name is Paisley Lafferty. The correspondence is enriching the lives of these young people as well as they forge new friendships. I think that especially during the pandemic, because um, we're not allowed to hang out with friends, I've actually gained new friends for, from pen pals. I know it's been really hard for them being stuck inside and not being able to see their family. The Pen Pal Project is a spin-off of a wider civic initiative to help Penticton become more age-friendly. There's not many opportunities for our students to get out there and connect, so to to have the opportunity to do it virtually was just such a such a great idea. And go virtual they did, also sending these personalized videos spreading holiday cheer. Oh, what fun is to make a cake with gladness. Creating connection and community while staying apart. I think it's one of the best things that could be. And bridging generations to bring people together. I'd love to have another letter from him. Yes, and even get to meet him someday. But for now, this will have to do. Happy New Year, KBR from Charles Manor. Happy New Year from Mr. Class at KBR. Shelby Tom, Global News. Oh, sweet. That's great. Still ahead, the inspiring story of former Vancouver Mayor Philip Owen. Number one. The sacrifice he made trying to save others from street drugs and why his lesson lives on. And the sale of a beautiful lakefront lot in Kelowna. Why soon everyone will be able to enjoy it. The expansion of Strathcona Park in Kelowna is officially on the books as the city has just purchased a residential lot right next door. The property was sold to Kelowna by Wally Lightbody, whose family has a long-standing history of philanthropy in the Kelowna community. It's been a great home for me. Yeah. Yeah, I got a little tearful thinking about it. I was so pleased when we, we made the decision to move here. Lightbody receiving $5.3 million for the nearly acre-sized parcel of Abbott Street Lakefront. The purchase will allow the city to expand Strathcona Park and is said to improve access to the beach. It should naturally be an extension of Strathcona Park. It's, it's, it's just such a natural, and the, the city, of course, we're delighted. You know, they, they, they want more parkland and the People of Kelowna want more parkland. The city says it'll be a while before any work is done on the property, as the 86-year-old Lightbody will reside in the home for some time to come. That is awesome. Bit of a polar bear dip off the beach there these days, even though it's kind of warm in the Okanagan mm -hmm. these days. But let's get the latest 
including some real winter weather in the prairies, Christy. That's right. You remember the windstorm we had two nights ago? Well, mm -hmm. it rolled through the prairies today uh, or yesterday. Um, Alberta, Saskatchewan getting hammered, but Saskatchewan in particular, where they had record-breaking gusts up to 143 kilometers an hour. So complete whiteout conditions. People were stranded, and there's huge damage, including to the power, cable, and internet lines. Uh, but as well, you can see these are the grain elevators there. So it was quite significant, and it really created right through. Typically, it breaks apart as it makes its way over the mountains, but it didn't and had quite intensity as it, makes, it made its way across those provinces. Now, we had a nice dry day today. Not bad, but the chance of rain is going to ramp up as we head through the overnight period. And the good news is, is that it's going to push out just in time for the morning. So we do have a chance of showers tomorrow morning, especially for those of you through the Fraser Valley. But it stays low, that chance of uh, rain, right through Saturday. There's that frontal band, mainly affecting the north coast with wind and rain there. But it's very brief across the south coast. And we do have a little bit of shower activity tomorrow, but overall some sunshine in the mix, which is really nice. Uh, highway forecast. I want to point out we have a risk of freezing rain for the Kohala and Hope Princeton. So Allison Pass in particular tonight, tomorrow morning. Tell your friends and family slick conditions are possible on those highways. In the meantime, enjoy your Friday, everyone. Nice to finish off the work week with a bit of blue sky. And we do have a few flurries in the mix, but nothing much, that's for sure. And that takes us into our Saturday as well. Saturday looking dry, although we'll see a fair amount of cloud. The showers aren't expected to return once again until Saturday evening. So the weekend and sort of split in half. And by the way, off in the distance, cold weather is set to push back in late next week. Yes, winter is about to make a comeback. Tonight's Central Windows weather window is from Daria. Uh, she works here and she sent us this from Vancouver. Incredible damage. That's why we take uh -oh. windstorm forecasting so seriously. Hope it wasn't her car. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, thanks, Christy. Sorry for the guy who <laughs> does own that car. Nasty. Former Vancouver Mayor Philip Owen was the first municipal politician to publicly demand a different strategy to deal with addiction in the city. The nonpartisan association mayor was an unlikely ally as he came from the west side and he had a privileged background. So what motivated him to be the advocate of the four pillars approach? Barnes has his story. On a Christmas day in the mid-90s, Vancouver Mayor Philip Owen went for a walk on the downtown east side. And because of that, things in his city would never be the same again. It was a defining moment. He realized the suffering, you know, uh, addiction doesn't observe high holidays. And I think that's when the penny really dropped and he decided that he was gonna take this on. Our view at City Hall is that to do nothing with uh, illegal narcotics in our city is not an option. He championed the four pillars approach to drug problems, despite a number of political allies being against the idea. Mayor Philip Owen didn't do the easy thing, he did what was right. In many ways, Philip Owen's compassion towards a drug addicted was a lesson he learned when he was a boy from his grandfather, who was the warden of Ocala Prison and treated all of the prisoners with respect. Uh, my great-grandfather knew all of them by name and uh, you know, treated them all with dignity. Which is the same thing Philip Owen did to the residents of the downtown east side. My admiration for Philip Owen is so deep that, um, you know, in many ways, uh, of course, I looked at him as a fatherly figure. Nearly everybody who's around Philip Owen looked at him as a fatherly figure. But to me, it really was. The Four Pillars approach has never gotten the full funding it needs, but there are legacies, including insight, 
Vancouver's safe injection site on the downtown east side. And now through the St. Paul's Foundation, the Philip Owen Professorship at UBC in Addiction Medicine. In medical school, people learn extensively how to manage heart disease, how to manage diabetes, not uh, much training at all around care for, for substance use and addictions, which is an equally prevalent condition. Philip Owen is now 87 and suffering from Parkinson's, but clearly his determination to take on the problems of addiction have not been forgotten. He used to be a neighbor, Squire. Great guy. Great neighbor. Yes, he lived... In Yaletown, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. See him walking around. Mm -hmm. And that story about him walking around on Christmas Day, he would do that a lot. He was someone who, if uh, he heard of something going on in any part of Vancouver, instead of just having someone write him a note about it, he'd say, well, let's, let's go take a look at it ourselves. I want to see what's going on. And he was on the downtown east side many times, uh, seeing what was happening down there. Good story. Uh, we are going to see what is happening with the Vancouver Canucks, because, of course, with this new schedule... You don't just play once, you play at least twice against the team. And when the Canucks come back home, they'll play three in a row against Montreal and Ottawa. So it's a rematch tonight. Pretty good win for them last night. Look forward to that. Squire, thanks very much. Also coming up for us, the search for a kindergartner's lost tooth and what the school vice principal did when no one could find it. Well, victory number one in the books for the Canucks. That was fun to watch last night, Squire. And those victories are bigger because it's only a 56-game season. Yeah. So it's kind of like 1.4 wins in a regular season. I don't know, something like that. Uh, one thing about this year's NHL schedule, losing team can get a rematch right away, and that's what the Canucks face with Edmonton tonight. Now, last night, the Canucks beat the Oilers 5-3. Everybody played pretty well in that game. Brock Besser, two goals in the third period. Uh, less than 24 hours later, they're going at it again. And this time, the Canucks are going to use Thatcher Demko in goal. Braden Holtby played well last night, but they don't want to play their goalies two straight nights. So, does Demko have the same magic that he had last summer in Edmonton, where he nearly led the Canucks over Vegas in round two of the playoffs? Let us see. Well, early on he does. In fact, he doesn't even have his stick, and he's able to stop former Canuck Zach Cassian. And another save, too, off uh, McDavid. There's the one right there. Actually, he has his stick there. He would lose it eventually in that scramble. Anyway, still 0-0. Oilers in the power play. They didn't score last night on four power plays, but they get one here. It's an easy one for Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the rebound. And then just before the end of the first period, it's a buzzer beater from McDavid. Watch the clock in the lower right, and you can see the puck is in before it goes to zero, and the Oilers are up 2-0 after one. Does this look weird? Yep, it does. That's uh, Jacob Markstrom in a Flames uniform. And this is Matthew Kachuk tipping in the first goal of the season for Calgary. Now, Calgary has a chance here to make it 2-0. Oh! Defenseman save! And it goes the other way, and Patrick Liney beats Markstrom. That ties at 1-1. Flames would go up 2-1, and then Chris Tanev, speaking of what looks weird, wearing number eight here, starts this play, which ends in a goal for Elias Lindholm, and it's 3-1 in the second. There's Tanev right there over Winnipeg. Well, yesterday we told you that BC's very own Olympic champion, rower, Kathleen Heddle died at the age of 55 from cancer. She won three gold medals during the 90s. She got into rowing because she was persuaded to when the coach at UBC 
saw her in a registration lineup and said, you know what, maybe you'd like to try rowing. It was a chance meeting that produced some of the greatest moments in Canadian sports history. It'll be Kathleen Heddle in the final 200 meters, turning it up for Canada. Kathleen Heddle was a big part of Canada's powerhouse women's rowing team of the 90s that brought home gold medals and prestige for a program that literally went from the basement to the penthouse in just a few short years. Heddle was the strong, silent type who epitomized the qualities of an Olympic champion, and she did it the Canadian way. It's all stories about integrity and kindness, and at the same time, in, in this like sweet package was this ferocious competitor, right? So there was sort of a magic to Kathleen. No one had a better seat to witness Kathleen's greatness than her rowing partner, Marnie McBean. Together, they won a record three gold medals over two Olympics. And even though it's been over 20 years since they last competed, those standards of excellence still stand today. Kathleen Heddle showed uh, Canadians that champions can be calm and, and can be gentle and kind and can be naturally inclusive before inclusivity was was um, being addressed. Uh, and and we're gonna um, we're gonna be working pretty hard to make sure that that her legacy uh, lives on. And people hear about it all the time. Heddle was just 55 and passed away after a long six-year battle with cancer and is survived by her husband Mike and children Lindsay and Mac. Urban Meyer has agreed to become the new Jacksonville Jaguars head coach and already he has a welcoming jumbotron. He was incredibly successful in college winning three national championships. He takes over a team that was 1-15 but does hold the first overall pick in this year's draft. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. All right. Uh, here's Andrea now with a preview of Global News at 11. And Thanks, Chris. We have breaking news. North Shore Rescue has been called out to look for a hiker who's believed to have gone missing on the St. Mark's Trail at Cyprus. We have a crew on scene. Plus, we'll have more on the COVID variants that have been confirmed in B.C., including one from South Africa. The infected person has no connection to travel. We'll also tell you about another case of the U.K. variant. And welcome news for drivers. The B.C. Utilities Commission has approved ICBC's request for a 15 percent decrease on basic insurance effective May 1st. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris, Sophie. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Anne. Up next, the case of the missing tooth and how a school vice principal saved the day. An elementary school vice principal, I might need to go back to elementary school to learn how to speak. An elementary school vice principal in Prince George is being praised for her kindness and creativity during a dental emergency. It all started when a young student lost a tooth and then lost it again. To ease his worries about missing out on the tooth fairy, she wrote him a letter. Our story is from CKPG News. I was eating my jam bagel. You're eating your bagel. Was it loose before? Um, it, I ate fruit leather, and then 
I found out that it was actually loose. Hands up if you've seen a bear. Gavin is in kindergarten at Hart Highlands Elementary School in Prince George. On Tuesday, like every child, he lost a tooth. Is this the first tooth that you lost? No. No. Number three. But this one, Gavin really lost. It is. It, it's a big deal because he was concerned about what that might look like at night when he went home and didn't have something to put under his pillow. <laughs> so the search for Gavin's tooth went far and wide, up and down, every corner of the classroom. But the only thing the search party found was leftover crumbs from lunchtime. We were looking and looking and looking and looking about 45 seconds. <laughs> the search for the runaway tooth, unsuccessful, but inspired a letter which was sent home to the tooth fairy. But the question everybody wants to know. Did the tooth fairy come? Yes. What did the tooth fairy get you? I didn't know if she was going to bring me a Rubik's Cube, but guess what? She actually just bought me a coin. Mission accomplished. Caden Fanshawe, CKBG News. It's <laughs> so cute. In case you're wondering, in the letter that was sent home, the vice principal tells the tooth fairy, please accept this letter as official verification of a lost tooth and provide the standard monetary exchange rate you <laughs> normally use for a real tooth. <laughs> so this proof. The, the vice principal also added a PS. I'm still waiting for payment from the wisdom teeth from 2000. <laughs> Can you get on it? I have bills to pay. Bills to pay. <laughs> I think I think the, the the tooth fairy only comes when you're a certain age or lower. Yeah, so. That may be true. It's mm -hmm. a, but you know, she's got to make good if if that was a long time ago. Uh, okay, let's check let's check up uh, one last check on weather before we go. Sure thing. So we are expecting rain overnight to push out through the morning hours tomorrow. So not a bad Friday, that's for sure. Saturday not looking too bad, but we'll likely see showers by Saturday night. And that happened to Braden too, and it's very stressful for the kids, so that was really nice. Traumatic. Mm -hmm. Well done. Okay, thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night.